Black History Month 2018 was one for the books. We saw millions of fans celebrate Janet Jackson Appreciation Day instead of Super Bowl Sunday. Sade announced her first musical release in seven years for the Ava DuVernay-directed A Wrinkle in Time. The Obama presidential portraits were finally unveiled, and the Golden State Warriors opted out of the traditional White House visit to instead take a group of students to the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture. We even saw a Black Lives Matter flag raised over a high school in Vermont. And of course, Black Panther burned up the box office, shattering records along the way. We spent the month honoring the past, present, and future of blackness in Brooklyn. We got a lesson on jazz great Betty Carter's legacy from some of her contemporaries and closest friends. We joined a book club that celebrates black literature and womanhood. And we followed a group of students from Brooklyn all the way to Wakanda. Black history, black futures, black excellence. Say it loud in Brooklyn, USA. Born Lily Mae Jones in Flint, Michigan on May 16, 1929, Betty Carter had already worked alongside jazz greats like Dizzy and Bird before she was tapped by Lionel Hampton to join his band in 1948. Though Betty is perhaps best known for her work with Ray Charles on the duet Baby It's Cold Outside, she also formed her own record label, Bet Carr Records, in 1970, a major feat for a female musician at a time when jazz was losing popularity. Apart from her stellar career as a jazz vocalist and savvy businesswoman, Betty's crowning achievement was forming the Jazz Ahead Music Education Program at BAM in 1993, only blocks away from her home in Fort Greene. Betty's vision helped launch the careers of countless musicians, educators, and even folks on the business side of the music industry. A few of them sat down with us recently to give a closer look at Betty Carter and how Jazz Ahead was born. Here's Betty's former attorney and now celebrated artist manager, Gail Boyd. Ora Harris, Betty's manager and closest friend. Vocalist Carmen Lundy, who took over as resident clinician of Jazz Ahead for nearly two decades after Betty's passing in 1998. Mark Carey, pianist and professor of jazz improvisation at the Juilliard School. And Sharon A. Wade, vocalist and professor at the Aaron Copeland School of Music at Queens College. Here's Gail. In 1976, I was living in New York, and I went to the Village Vanguard, and I heard her for the first time. I fell in love with her, and then right after that, I moved back to Chicago. And there was a concert or something where if you pay a little extra, you can go to the meet and greet, and I did. And I walked up to her, and she was talking to a group of students, and she said, if anybody knew how to get me on the black college circuit, I would really appreciate that. I had just gotten out of law school in 1975. I raised my hand and I said, oh, I can get you on the black college circuit. And she said, oh, really, how? So I laid out this really detailed plan right there at the meet and greet. And she said, young lady, I can tell from what you're saying that you know absolutely nothing about what you're talking about. But I like your spirit. And she gave me her phone number and said, give me a call whenever you're in New York. So I went home, and I bought a ticket, and I called her, and I said, it just so happens I'm going to be in New York in about two or three weeks, whatever it was. And I came to New York and sat in her house right there at 117 St. Felix, and we talked and talked, and she said, well, so you're pretty new out of law school. What do you know how to do? And I said, I know how to do wills. And she said, okay, you can do my will. So I did her will. And I charged like $150 for a will, and I told her that, and she gave me a check for like $1,500. So I said, what's this for? And she said, well, from now on, you can tell people that Betty Carter is your client, because you'll owe me 
hours. And that's basically how I came into her life and she came into mine. Betty uh, was always, of course, a deep thinker and always thinking about music. But the issue that was always on her mind constantly, she always had in her mind audience building. How do we build a better audience uh, for jazz? And this was something in her mind, and she thought about it and thought about it a lot. And then uh, I think in 1993 was the beginning, the first Jazz Ahead program. We knew that she would need someone to collaborate with in order to make her dream come true because she wanted to be a big program, she wanted to tour, and she wanted to um, mentor more young artists. At BAM, there was this wonderful, wonderful uh, director by the name of Mickey Shepard. And Betty finally had a wonderful meeting with uh, Mickey Shepard, and they discussed Betty's vision of Jazz Ahead, and it just went from there. I don't know if I was as prepared as much as I was thrilled and honored to even be asked to represent this great lady, and I knew what that meant. I knew that I had to do the exact same thing that she did with me. Somehow, the point was to really embody her dedication, to kind of have a sense that she would be okay with me doing this. But there was also the fact she must have known, and it helped that I knew, that I was a musician. I have studied, write music, that language, I understand the language, I know the theory. That helps when you're in a situation with mostly musicians. You know, you're working with musicians who Betty Carter insisted must play their own music, their own compositions. So here I am, you know, music is flying all over the place and it's all new music. That's what distinguishes Jazz Ahead from any other program, was that the focus was on your music to find your voice. So, you know, we'd come in and that first maybe day or so, we have all these artists from all over the world and they have to get acquainted with one another. And we have to as faculty, get a sense of their level and you know how they're writing and what their songs are like. First time, we, what we do is we just call standards. I mean, everybody just plays. We just play tunes. It would be the same thing if Betty just said, you're on the bandstand and she calls some tune and you don't know it? Let's count it off. One, two, it goes like this, boom. And she did that. She did that all the time. At some point, I realized, okay, now we spend two weeks together. We've gotten a sense of who's kind of compatible with whom and all of those things that kind of make for better performances and a better workshop experience. And then, of course, at the end of this two-week period, they all perform. They all come to the stage and they all play their own music. Something she told me when I was getting ready to leave the band, she said, you're ready to go play with the guys now. So... The whole time I was in the band, she would talk about the difference between playing with the guys and playing with, you know, someone like her, which she's not the only one that exists uh, or existed. She came in the order of some great women, you know, and was brought up through some great men as well. So her perspective on it was 
that the women are going to treat you a certain way. Like, no guys are going to take you to get a suit. And if you don't have your passport, you ain't on the gig. Like, that would have been the final to whether I was going to get the gig or not. Do you have a passport now? No. Okay, all right, you out. Because I need, you know, most people working on timelines, like late timelines. So I need your passport now so I can book the ticket today. That Betty worked ahead of time. You know, and plus she knew young cats. So that was something that she probably, you know, made a concession for. Like, okay, I probably have to get him a suit. I probably have to get him, you know. But she made room for that. She cared in that way. So that was the thing that made you feel comfortable with the criticism that she gave. Because at the same time, she slapped you, she hugged you. So it was like, wow, okay, you brought me down, you picked me up at the same time. She could do that. She might do that with an extra bump on your check after a rough tour. But she could also do things like really challenge what you thought you wanted to do, commit yourself to. You know, and I've seen some guys go the other way. Where I'm totally inspired by Betty. Uh, there were times where I felt like, wow, I wouldn't let nobody talk to me like that. And I don't think she meant it in no bad way. She was really dealing with the music. She wanted the highest quality from the music. And not everyone knows how to deal with that soft. I don't think you could deal with that kind of issue soft. So what she was doing is separating the weak. I hate to call somebody weak because they can't take something Betty said. But the people that couldn't take that probably couldn't take something that one of the guys said either. So I would say that due to the maybe the lack of people really knowing the depth of Betty is why she's not spoken of all the time in the same breath as a Miles Davis or some of the men, you know. But if you talk to the musicians, they're going to talk about Betty, you know, more likely, especially in my generation, because we had access to her. memory of being introduced to Betty Carter was this uh, record. I don't remember who gave it to me or how I found it, but I think I was looking for some Carmen McRae stuff, and I stumbled on the Betty Carter and Carmen Duets album, and I obsessed about it. I think it was in, like, a sophomore in high school. At that point, I was deep into Sarah Vaughn, deep into... Um, Diane Reeves, deep into uh, Cassandra Wilson, uh, Phyllis Hyman. Carmen McRae came around, and then when I stumbled on Betty, I fell in love. And I never turned back after that, because for me, she represented the kind of uh, musician I wanted to be. And, you know, as a vocalist, I always felt a little bit on the outside of the music, because... You know, when you come in, you're kind of like, you do your one song, and then the band plays, right? But with Betty Carter, they were all an ensemble, right? It wasn't the vocalist and the band. It didn't, at least it didn't feel that way to me. It felt like she was inside the music, as opposed to layered on top. And that was a different experience for me. Also watching videos of her, uh, conducting the band, it just shifted the way I thought about who I could be in the band as a band leader, you know, and how I could shape the music in a more centered and empowered way from an empowered place. So Betty Carter really changed my entire 
life <laughs> musically, you know. All right, guys. Stop what you're doing. We're done for today. We're about to wrap up. I want to tell y'all guys about an important date. Y'all, this is February 16th, 2018. Anyone know what that day means? Try. It is at the Valentine's Day. So something I've been working on and I haven't really told anyone is that uh, I started a GoFundMe for you guys. Yeah. All right, can I get a little drum roll? <laughs> we going to see yeah. what? The superhero is black. The 31-year-old director is black. The cast, also majority black. This all helped lead to the creation of the Black Panther Challenge. I recently tweeted out a GoFundMe page. A fundraising campaign to send young African-American kids to see this movie. And the response has been amazing. I'm going to donate some money to the cause so the kids can go check it out. In early January 2018, the campaign to send 300 kids to see Black Panther went viral. The Black Panther Challenge started out as a GoFundMe that I began to send children from the Boys and Girls Club of Harlem to see the Black Panther film. I'm Frederick Joseph, and I'm a marketing professional. Yeah, I'm a big comic head, as they say, like a blurred, you know, black nerd. When I saw how receptive people were to that GoFundMe, I started the Black Panther Challenge and kind of uh, blown up since. Exceed Charter School in Crown Heights was one of the first Brooklyn schools to create their own campaign. I started collecting comic books when I was in third grade. Uh, my oldest brother, he collected comic books from like Deadpool, Cable, Wolverine. Everyone like, got black people. Yeah, like the crates full of the comic books. And I started collecting them too. And that then carried on until I got to high school when I thought I was like too cool. My full name is Primus Allen Cobb, the fourth. I'm a seventh grade math teacher. We definitely have random debates in class, whether it's talking about Japanese, like anime, to DC Comics, to Marvel. Marvel has more villains than um, DC. No, and more characters. Like, DC what? has the most more people ever. Marvel, Marvel has uh, some characters, but DC, they knows. have Wonder Woman, Marvel they have Batman. Batman. What else? They're used to me knowing stuff, and they want to battle. If I will have a superpower, um, the superpower I would want is super speed because I could do many things with it. I think I would go with magic. Reading minds. Uh, me being taller. Healing power because I like to save people that are in trouble, like have a sickness or something. So who's a better couple though? Black Panther and Storm or Cyclops and Jean Grey? Um, Black Panther and Storm. Black Panther. Why? Because they look so cute together. <laughs> you know, this is Brooklyn, Crown Heights. Uh, a lot of my students come from like Caribbean, West Indian background. Ola, he goes, he goes to Nigeria over the summer and stuff yeah. like that, right? A lot of my students are from Nigeria, Guinea. They speak several different languages. Right, you go to Guinea. I was growing up and we might have one kid who was maybe from Haiti and wants to get picked on because they're the minority, even being in an African-American community. And here, these kids here can actually talk to each other in different languages and to be accepted. And I think that's like one of the coolest things I've seen since I've been here, just that, that acceptance. How many, how many languages does Black Panther speak, Gunna? Speak, he speaks Yoruba, five. He speaks. I heard he speaks like way more than that. I heard he speaks like a bunch no, of languages. I know he speaks, I think he speaks all languages. How many languages do you speak, bro? Fulani, English, 
Olaf. My name is Ibrahim Diallo. Um, I understand Arabic a little bit and a little bit of French. Like the first time you seen Black Panther coming out, because I know for me, uh, just being like African American, like I was hype. You know what I mean? Yes. So like, how did you feel? I was like, the first they time? finally making a black person movie. <laughs> they always make a white person movie. Exactly, because not racist, but like they always. My name is Jibala Barebo. I'm I'm from Nigeria, and um, since Black Panther is also from Nigeria, I felt mind blown that they have a Nigerian person and they finally have a black person. I was watching Lord of the Ring, and that's when I realized I didn't see any black actor over there. And I was like, Black Panther, and I just but see all black people. I was like, oh, I'm actually hyped and stuff. Yeah. And I was then, really excited to see him. But then also I was questioning myself, will they have a movie for him? Will they have a TV show? Because all these years, they never had no black person. All they had was white people playing um, superheroes. So you know what colonization is? Colonize, something being colonized. A colony? Black Panther was the actual first black Marvel superhero character in the comics. The movie's steeped in this like Afrofuturistic world where, you know, Wakanda was a nation that was never colonized. So we see, like, hey, had colonialization never taken place, what could these nations have been? Or what could they, what can they still become? Do you think like this is what Africa would look like if? people didn't come in and like put their own culture on it? I think so. You think so? Maybe a yeah. little bit like that, but not like... like a little. Totally. Yeah, not totally, but like... Half. Not people flying around, mm -hmm. but... Yeah. I really think it's gonna look like that because mostly people, when they discover something new, they just try to take over and try to make their own and claim it. James Baldwin said something that I always think about. He said that kids have never been that great at listening to their peers, but they've always been great at imitating them. The reason why I wear this Black Panther party patch is just one, I want the kids to ask about it. So I think if people didn't come and try to colonize other areas or countries and stuff, especially in Africa, they would have advanced even more. It's also a reminder to me, like, sometimes the civil rights movement seems like it was long ago, but it wasn't that long ago. We're still fighting. This is still a fight. On the 16th, the big day, the students will be heading to Court Street. I'm excited to see what Wakanda looks like. What I'm waiting to see is when he's on jumping on cars and trying to find fight the bad guy. Uh, it will be a red carpet. And I want to see that part because it sounds it's, it's like very actional, and I like actional movies, action movies. The whole school is going. I'm excited to see how they're gonna control and what they're gonna do. This is history, I think, and uh, hopefully they realize that they're gonna be a part of history here. So, yeah.
from the MCU and black people don't really get big times on the movie screen. This has a 98% Rotten Tomatoes review, so I believe like this is a step forward to break walls of stereotypes and yeah. Well right now I'm feeling a lot of black boy joy and uh, I'm very, very excited to be with my entire family, my real family and my school family. I feel royal. Alright, yeah, they talking too much. I feel royal. I feel special, and thank you. I'm just glad I don't have school. Back to your seat. Back to your seat. Seeing yourself being represented is super important. The same reason why I walk into this classroom looking like myself, I'm hoping that I represent them, hoping this movie represents them. What does it mean to be heroic in the real world or in the comic world? It's like what um, Spider-Man uncle said, with great power come great responsibility. Basically, it's being kind, being nice, and being yourself. You have to have confidence in yourself and don't have low self-esteem. I believe these kids really do have like superpowers. Like they really can turn into like whatever they want to. And I think seeing that black superhero is going to give them that same belief. It's giving me, as even as a grown-up, <laughs> more belief. Yo, I'm black and I'm proud. Yes. I'm feeling great. I'm feeling awesome. I'm proud to be black, yo. In 2015, a small group of like-minded women gathered in the backyard of a bar in Bed-Stuy to celebrate the uniqueness of black literature, and the well-read Black Girl Book Club was born. We caught up with the group's founder, Glory Edom, and some other well-read black girls at their inaugural festival last fall to talk about the importance of representation, sisterhood, and community in the literature world. Here's Glory. Being a well-read black girl means opportunities and possibilities. And uh, being around other people who have the same love of reading and the same love of books and articles that are about black women, that are for black women. To be a girl, a black woman of power. And that I contain multitudes, that I am part of a beautiful community of young women like myself. To me, it means being a part of a legacy of other um, people who lift us up. Connecting my experience with other black women who are here to empower each other. To continue the work of our ancestors who you know, fought hard to get our stories on paper and to just stay informed. Reading as much as you can and not letting anyone dictate what you know. It's books, it's culture, it's coming together as a collective community. And that also means anytime I can have a book by a well-read black girl and have it in my bag, I get to carry those stories around with me. Just black girl magic. Can I do that again? Because <laughs> I know I really... <laughs> When I was younger, being a well-read black girl was something very isolated because I grew up in uh, a white town. So being a part of this book club means that um, I'm a literate black woman in community with other literate black women. I'm Morgan Good, and I grew up on a vegetable farm in Connecticut. <laughs> I'm Demi Elder. Um, I live in Brooklyn, and I'm a long-standing member of World Wide Initially, Black Initially, it meant isolation um, for me, because when same. I was a kid, I would and consume me, a lot of books. You know, um, when books, like bags of I books from the library, and it was just something that was kind of strange about me. And now, it's something that I can embrace and learn from and turn into other good things and use for solace. And it's just a really special part of my life. What I should be I interested love in, books, places that and I, I love can community. go. Reading really just opens up a whole new world for me. And 
I think that's important for black women to know that we don't have to fit into anyone's box because the world is constantly telling us who we should be, um, what type of books we should read, what type of music we should listen to. But you don't have to live so, a life to understand it if you're reading books and you know all about it. The privilege of reading stories of people who not only look like you, but also articulate your feelings in a way that you might not be so, able to. So finding uh, this community has been really special. It doesn't matter if you're new to the industry or you're trying to create your first book. You belong in this space, and I want people to come together and really enjoy the literature that's out there and also challenge the notion of what an author looks like. I've always been a black girl who has loved to read. There weren't a lot of books growing up for me, and I feel like for a lot of black women that feature characters that look like them. Uh, hearing the stories of other black people and their experiences and being able to connect to those experiences to make sense of my experience in this country. Um, More often than not, we don't read about ourselves. We are not able to relate you know, to what's going on because there's so many things that are not made for us. So being able to like, you know, to cry, to be happy, to, you know, express her emotions and just to be able to collectively get together and, you know, and just celebrate ourselves because I feel like we, we as black women don't do that enough. Literature deserves to have more voices, more lived experiences, and people want to be together and talk about books together. Reading can be isolating, and it's nice to come into a room of writers and readers and lovers of words. Same, I actually moved <laughs> to Brooklyn less than two years ago. It's just amazing to see, when we come together as a community, what we can build together. It's a space to say that we exist, and we exist very nuanced and not in a way that uh, maybe presented in the mainstream culture. There are black women who want to read other black women, and it's just really, it's, it's just a beautiful thing. The book club started two years ago, and in that time we've met with over 30 authors. I'm Basi Ikbi, Saida Kwanzaa, and I'm a writer and mental health advocate. And I am an aspiring writer and book lover. We've been able to invite young girls to come. I would have loved to have been part of something like this when I was a young girl. It's been a space where I can serve as a liaison with the members of the community and help them enter the world of publishing. It is just really affirming to know that these spaces exist. We've been able to talk to established authors as well as emerging authors. Hi, I'm Natasha Dayon. I'm Brittany Danielle. Charlie Yvonne Simpson. I'm Marita Golden, and I'm a writer. A playwright, an author of Grace, and a general badass. And I'm really honored that people have um, They've trusted me. They've trusted me to be a curator. They've trusted me to be a friend and really introduce the authors that I love and admire to give them more visibility, give them an opportunity to have a chance to just connect with other people. And it, for me, it's just been a very edifying experience. I'd never imagined in the last few years that the club would have grown how it has, and I've made so many new friends. Denise Steven. Chelsea Johns. Martin Granby. Vanity G. Makisha. Denise Savoy, Ebony Liddell, Nafisa, Faven Fasazian, Stephanie, Kia, Dari Jean Baptiste, Gina, I'm Anuli, Andurinya Paneso, Karen Elga Gulmad, Saida Belasagi, Brittany Weavers, and I'm Glorita, and I'm the founder of Well Read Black Girl. It's been an exciting and a really rewarding experience to be in this role, and I'm doing my best to grow into it and learn as much as possible so I can help others and really create a strong, affirming community. community of women who are so smart and who I've learned so much from. It's been really amazing so far. I wouldn't be anywhere else.
Brooklyn USA is produced by me, Sasha Mathias, and Emily Bogosian. Thanks to Gail Boyd, Ora Harris, Carmen Lundy, Mark Carey, Sharon A. Wade, Shannon Effinger, and Kai Youngblood for telling Betty Carter's story. And to Keisha T.K. Dutes and the Bonfire Radio family for mixing the piece. For more information on Betty Carter and Jazz Ahead, visit www.kennedycenter.org. Thanks to Primus Cobb and the seventh graders at Exceed Charter School for letting us tag along, and to Frederick T. Joseph for starting the Black Panther Challenge. That story was produced by Emily Bogosian and Carol Palmer. Thanks to Glory Edom and all of the well-read Black girls who took time out of the festival to share their experiences with us. For more information on the book club, visit www.wellreadblackgirl.com. And make sure to pick up the upcoming anthology, Well-Read Black Girl, Finding Our Stories, Discovering Ourselves, when it comes out this fall. This episode featured music from the DeWolf Music Library. If you like what you hear, think we got something wrong, or just want to get in touch, you can leave us a comment, tweet us at Brick Radio, or leave a message at 347-504-0801. For more information on this and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit brickartsmedia.org radio. My personal hero is Michelle Obama because she makes sure that girls get an education, even though she's not uh, like a, a the president's the pre, the um, king. What's it say? Even though she's not the um, president's wife anymore, like they're not presidents anymore, she still helps people around. She helps the Red Cross and stuff. She helps people and stuff. That's what I like about her.